If you will join me this morning in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, we will be looking at verses 1 through 24 as we continue through our series in the Gospel of Luke. Our sermon this morning is entitled, Humbly Exalted, and our key words are humility, mercy, and love. Winston Churchill was known for many things. One of the things that he was very well known for was his wit and his craft when it came to using language, and particularly when it came to clever put-downs with others. One time, Churchill was describing one of his political opponents, and he said of him, he's a modest little man who had a good deal to be modest about. Truth be told... For the person who really understands their own heart and contemplates their own desires and intentions, this should be said of all of us, shouldn't it? Humble, because we have a lot to be humble about. In other words, we all have a lot of faults. We all experience areas of brokenness and incompleteness in our lives, and we should express great humility when we take an inventory of who we really are. However, that's not often the case of us, is it? All of us are quite fond of ourselves. And if we weren't, we wouldn't demand much from life and we certainly wouldn't feel deserving of anything that we have. However, it's true of the human experience that if there's one person in all of the world that we love, it's me, myself, and I. The Apostle Paul uses this universal truth when he instructs husbands and wives about their roles in marriage. In Ephesians 5, he says, In the way that Christ loved the church, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Likewise, Jesus identifies this very same reality when he summarizes the second table of the law, commandments 6 through 10, by saying, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. You see, Jesus and Paul didn't question whether or not this was true. They simply identified with universal application the fact that you and I and everyone around us is most ultimately concerned about our very own interests. It's in our nature. It's who we are. It's what we do. Now, in this morning's text, Jesus addresses those Pharisees and lawyers that we have seen time and time again at this point in the Gospel of Luke. He identifies that these men have every reason to be the most humble of all men. And yet they show no humility at all. They are filled with pride. And as a result of their pride, they lack mercy and they lack love. Let's look in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
but they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, as we read these verses, there are a few key things that ought to stand out to us right away. A first importance here is that all of this is happening on the Sabbath day. Secondly, notice that this was in the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. He was a head honcho, a chief of the Pharisees in his region. Third, notice that there is also a very unlikely guest in their midst, a man who is very ill with a disease called dropsy. Now, we will look at all these elements individually, but but here's what I want to point out. It should be obvious to us that this is a setup all the way. The day, the location, the guests, it's all a ploy. And it's a big hint at this fact in verse 1 when Luke writes, they were watching him carefully. You see, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen three other instances where where Jesus has, in the minds of the Pharisees, violated the Sabbath day. In chapter 4, we saw two events. Jesus cast demons out of a man, and he healed Simon Peter's mother. We saw in chapter 6, when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. And a few weeks ago, we looked in chapter 13 at Jesus' healing of the woman who was bent over at the waist when he was preaching in a synagogue. Now, all of these, of course, the Pharisees considered to be unlawful on the Sabbath day, not because God had said so, but because they wanted to hedge God's law by incorporating further restrictions as to not provide even a hint of an opportunity for anybody to accidentally sin, or so they said. You see, the laws of the Pharisees weren't actually about keeping people from sin. They were about power and manipulation. They required of others what they themselves were unwilling to do. So Jesus is openly condemning the Pharisees' abuse of God's law by doing the very things that they were seeking to use against him. So here it is, the Sabbath day, and Jesus is invited into the home of the ruler of the Pharisees. The others who were there, for lack of a better term, were high-ranking religious leaders. They would have had some power, they would have had some influence among the Jews. And they all gathered around to see what Jesus would do. And they baited him with a man in their presence with dropsy. Now, dropsy is an old medical term. And it refers to excessive accumulation of watery fluids in tissue or space of the body. I assure you, I didn't know that. I had to look it up. (laughs) It's a symptom of all sorts of disorders, such as heart or liver or kidney disease. So we don't know exactly what was going on with this man, but we do know that he had some internal disease that was so prominent in his body that it was externally obvious to everyone that he was suffering, probably from a swollen stomach. The man was soon to die. So the Pharisees rightly assumed that having this man in their presence at this meal, that Jesus wasn't going to let the man go 
without healing him. It wasn't in him to do it. In their minds then, they had the perfect trap. They were thinking, we can see it happen right before us and we will have the power to do something about it. He will heal on the Sabbath and in so doing, we will be able to move to have this man killed for breaking our law. They thought they had him backed in a corner. However, Jesus has never been one to be duped, to ever fall into an evil trap. Jesus always did the wisest, most perfect thing in every situation. So he responds to them and they sit in waiting and he says, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now consider the two ways they could have answered this question and the results of it. If they say yes, then they would come across as soft and hypocritical So, since they had so stringently sought to apply their regulations and their practices, particularly as it applied to Sabbath observance. However, if they say no, they're going to reveal the reality of their hearts. The fact that they lack all mercy and compassion, that they are inhumane and care only about themselves and their power, not about the plight of those who suffer all around them. So they were willing to condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day. But when it came for them to actually take responsibility and answer a question that would point out the reality of their own hearts, they back away in silence. Jesus shuts their mouths before they can even speak. Notice that Luke says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. But what had they said at that point? Not a word. He discerned the wicked thoughts and desires of their hearts. Then we read in verse 4, Jesus healed the man, completely restored him to health, and free from his previous suffering. And Luke also notes that Jesus sent him away. The man didn't need to sit around as a pawn in the game of the Pharisees. He was free to go. And what joy would have filled his heart. But Jesus wasn't done with the Pharisees. In fact, he was just getting started. Look again at verses 5 and 6. He said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus asked them essentially, could it really be true that you would show more mercy to an ox than you would to a suffering man? You'd give all of your effort for your son or for a dumb animal, but for this man that I'm healing? You see, Jesus isn't condemning observance of the Sabbath day in any way at all, but rather he's highlighting the Pharisees' abuse of it. And as we, look at, as, we, as we looked at in chapter 13, he's highlighting one of the wonderful things that we should undertake on the Lord's day, showing mercy to others. What Jesus did was standing in direct opposition to the Pharisees. And not only did they not have anything to say, Luke writes in verse 6 that they could not reply to these things. Have you ever been caught in a lie before? 
and all of the evidence was so strong against you that you wanted to make a last-ditch effort to, to try and work it all out. And what you were about to say wasn't going to be good enough and it just stunned you into absolute silence. What could they say? These men who were supposed to be the leaders among the leaders of Israel, and yet they were shown to be abusers and twisters of the law of God. They didn't love God. They surely didn't love their neighbor. They were proud lovers of self. They were arrogant manipulators, and not one of them would see the kingdom of God if their hearts remained unchanged. Now, the Pharisees were silenced at this point, but they certainly didn't expect what Jesus had to say next. So let's look at verses 7 through 11. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it was an ancient custom that a host of a party or a banquet would position the guest at his table after they had seated themselves. The idea was that the host would sit at the head of the table, and then from there the most highly honored guests would sit right next to him, and then on down the line in order of importance. So we can hardly imagine such a thing because it seems like it would take a lot of guts to go up to someone and say, can you please move down to the end of the table? This seat is reserved for someone else. That's really given the custom, the nice way of saying, you are not nearly as important as this person. Move it. But this was the common custom. Really, it was simply the way that things were organized as they gathered for banquets and meals. It's somewhat similar to, in our culture, what would be a wedding reception where the immediate family of the bride and the groom will have special seating, the wedding party will be given special seating, and of course the bride and groom will be central. They will have a special place to sit. It would be really embarrassing to show up and to sit with your date at that little table at the front of the reception hall. It looks so nice, it looks so cozy and romantic, and then only to realize that that is the seat for the bride and groom. So we get this picture here that Jesus watches the Pharisees and the lawyers as they came and they take their seats at the party. And what he saw was very revealing of their hearts. They were seeking to push themselves in front of each other to take the seats of honor. It kind of reminds me of sometimes we get stuck in long traffic lines when there's construction or you're, you're trying to get off the interstate onto an exit. 
And inevitably, there is someone who's going to drive up the shoulder or they're going to stay in that lane that's moving only to cut over at the very last minute. And everyone starts hugging the bumper in front of them because they're not letting him in because you've been waiting in line for 20 minutes. They want to get in front of 150 other people who have patiently waited. Eventually, someone lets Speedy Gonzalez in because they don't want to get in an accident. That's a terribly self-serving behavior. And it says, I am the most important person. And my firstness will be established at any time I wish that it will be. I am more important than all of these other people who have waited. You know, it wasn't long ago in chapter 11 when we saw Jesus shiting the Pharisees for seeking the most important seats in the synagogue. And they were inviting all of these elaborate greetings in the marketplace. And here we see it again. They're each making their move to find their place at the table in the most honored seat so everyone could see them and wish they were sitting there. It was very telling of their hearts. They lacked all humility. They were very self-serving. They were a proud group of men. It was important to them that they be seen in a place of prominence, that they held the seats of honor, lest others thought them to be less than what they thought themselves to be. These were the guys that we've all run into at some point in our lives. You know their title and you hear about how important they are before you actually know their name. Perhaps you see it in your workplace. Maybe some of you have bosses like this. They remind you how, how frequent, they frequently remind you how important they are. In fact, your boss, in case you forget, swings by your cubicle every now and then to say, oh, by the way, I wanted to just remind you that you report to me. Maybe they sign all of their emails. Sincerely, your boss. This was the sin of the Pharisees. It was intensely spiritual. Human honor gave them a sense of substance and reality. Human recognition told them that they were superior to all of their fellow men. And if that was true, they were also of greater value in their eyes before God. The same illusion is very rampant today. Salvation by recognition. Eternal life through temporal significance. Immortality through notoriety. It's a sad reality. But at this dinner party that Jesus sat at, it was a dinner of the damned, as we'll see in the final verse of our text this morning. So seeing all of this take place, Jesus now turns to a parable to reveal the hearts of the Pharisees and to instruct all that would hear of a true heart of one who loves and seeks to please God. Jesus is actually just using a proverb here to highlight what the Pharisees would have been very well aware of. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So Jesus begins this parable by painting a display of outrageous pride. 
and yet very revealing of the hearts of the Pharisees. He speaks of a guest who is like one who you can imagine arrives early at a wedding feast. And as he surveys all of the seating arrangements, he chooses the seat reserved for the mother of the bride, and he seats himself there. What a wonderful seat. Everyone around will see him. Everyone will notice him. Everyone will consider him to be important. He feels so good about himself. He imagines what wonderful things all of those people who are whispering to each other and pointing at him are saying about him. He looks down at the wonderful food on his plate only to look up and see the host standing over him and asking him to move to another seat. That one over there on the side of the banquet hall. How embarrassing. How crushing to his pride. He went from what he thought was the most prominent place in all of the room and now he's the man that has everyone turning to their neighbor and saying, I'm glad I'm not that guy. Jesus instructs another way of seating oneself. He says, don't take the seat of highest honor. Rather, seek to find the one of lowest priority. In other words, don't assume that you are most important and that everyone agrees with you. Assume what you really should know about yourself, namely that you have a lot to be humble about. But lest we think Jesus is encouraging false humility or simply giving a tactic for us to avoid embarrassment, he provides an insight into the kingdom of God through this parable. He says in verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and for everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the very thing that we see about how God works throughout the Bible, isn't it? Proverbs 3:34 is quoted by both James and Peter. It says, "God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." It's what we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus's primary concern isn't with the most notable, the most honored, the most prominent people of the community. No, Jesus is focusing all of his effort and all of his, his work toward those who are meek and lowly and humble. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, it is God, not us, but God who humbles the proud and exalts the humble. It is His personal work. And the Pharisees and the lawyers sought to take a work of God into their own hands, to show themselves important, to exalt themselves. The scriptures, on the other hand, tell us that the importance of a man lies not in how he portrays himself, but rather in how the Lord exalts or humbles him in the end. Now, Jesus continues here in verse 12. He said, also to the man who had invited him, when you... Give a dinner or a banquet. Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. 
because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus moves from telling his hearers what kind of guest to be and focuses now on what a host should be. Who should be invited to the banquet? It's important to recognize that Jesus isn't condemning attempts at being hospitable to those who are friends and our neighbors and our loved ones. That's not his point here. In fact, Jesus himself was a regular guest in the homes of friends. But the issue that Jesus raises is this, and it's often the case. He's condemning what the Pharisees were so guilty of. That man that we saw earlier, the man with dropsy, he wasn't there because they wanted to minister to him. He wasn't there because they wanted to share a meal with him and care for him and spend time with him. He was there as bait. He was a pawn in their ploy to catch Jesus. The Pharisees were guilty of focusing all of their attention on those people that could give to them in return, that they could receive from others. I remember one time my uh, parents had sent flowers to a couple to say thank you for something that the couple had done for them. And then those people contacted me asking for my parents' address so they could send a thank you card for the flowers. I assured them that they didn't need to send a thank you for the thank you, lest it turn into this quid pro quo battle of thank yous back and forth. Thank you for the thank you card. That's a small thing, but the Pharisees were always thinking along those lines. I invited him to my home for a meal. Therefore, I expect that I will receive either a gift or an invitation in return. And if I don't, I will not serve him in the future. We know people like that, don't we? If they do something nice or if they, they give a gift for a wedding or a graduation or something like that, but they don't get a thank you card afterwards, oh my. They assume that the gift wasn't appreciated or the people who gave it to them were rude or whatever. Now, yes, it's important that we give thanks and we show appreciation. But ought we expect in return? Ought we use this as a determining factor as to whether or not we serve a person again in the future? Not according to Jesus. No, the point he is leading to is that one's social ethics show whether or not we are members of the kingdom of God. When someone is proud and elitist with the goal of having others always reciprocate with repayment every time they serve others, it shows an immense self-focus that lacks all humility. Jesus makes his point here very plain. If we do not reach out to others because we know they cannot benefit us, and we shouldn't limit this to dinner banquets, we must ask ourselves if we truly love God. He's quite specific in verses 13 and 14 as to who should be included. The one who does not care about the social status of others, but willingly serves and loves with compassion and mercy, regardless of whether or not they can be repaid, but willingly serves with love and compassion and mercy. It is those kingdom individuals 
who will be blessed and repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, as a side note here, verse 14 is the first explicit reference to the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. And it goes to show the tremendous payoff for those who lovingly and mercifully show themselves to be humble servants of others, no matter who they are. Brothers and sisters, we as a people, above all others, should understand that life is to be lived not as people who expect something in return from others, but rather as a people who know at times we're going to be taken advantage of, that we are going to be unappreciated, that we will be shown little thanks, and yet we are called to continue to love and to press forward in serving others anyway. Not with resentment, not with bitterness, not with an unwillingness to step out and serve again in the future, but rather continuing on with a heart of joy and grace and mercy for the sake of others. Why? Why would we do that? Two reasons, really. First, if we're serving others so that we can be recognized or receive thanks, we are serving with selfish motives and they lack all true humility. Such an attitude is revealing of a person's heart. It displays whether or not they will truly inherit the kingdom of God. But even more significant than this is the reality that we, if we are Christians, we have been served by the one who above all others could require something of us in return. But he didn't. Let me ask you, What did you have to offer God when he saved you? I'm guessing a whole lot of sin and selfish ambition and pride and and licentiousness. I mean, it really is a ludicrous idea to even think that in any way we could ever adequately express thanks to God for Jesus Christ let alone repay him for what has been accomplished on our behalf in Jesus taking upon himself the full wrath of the Father reserved for us. Think about that. You and I are so undeserving and we're completely unable to repay God in any way. And yet what does he do for us? He invites us to recline at table with him at the great wedding banquet, the great feast where the people of God, the bride of Christ, will gather with her bridegroom in the kingdom of God. And even more significant and mind-blowing is that the admission price was the death and resurrection of God's own son, Jesus Christ. So should we be asking why it is that we need not live lives expecting something in return from others? The Lord Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. This is the epitome of humility and mercy. The one who has every right to come in splendor and terror, wielding a rod of iron for our destruction. Instead, he came first in humble poverty, bearing a cross for our salvation. And we expect a thank you card because we gave someone a blanket when their baby was born. 
We expect an invitation to their kid's wedding because we invited them to our graduation party. You see the perspective here. Understanding what Christ has done and is doing. When we understand what Christ has accomplished for us, we see what is infinitely important. And I hope that all of us have that perspective, that we don't lose that perspective, that we will show mercy, we will be humble, we will serve and serve and serve others expecting nothing in return. We continue in love. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there with the Pharisees. If there was any confusion among them as to where they stood, I can't imagine how, but Jesus is about to clear up that question with yet another parable. Look in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the cities and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So here we have one of the Pharisees getting up the nerve to speak up. And he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now you'd think these guys would at this point have enough encounters with Jesus to know that they are not going to like what they hear after they try to make themselves look good in light of all that Jesus has condemned them for. But alas, they continue to say dumb things. This man's statement is the equivalent of saying, Blessed are the likes of us who will eat a feast in the kingdom of God. They didn't get it. They were blind. They were deaf when it came to the words that Jesus was speaking. But Jesus continues from his previous instruction, and now he provides an illustration of a man giving a banquet, and it's for their soul's sake. Remember, while Jesus went after the Pharisees time and again, he was very much concerned for their souls. And so Jesus delivers this parable of the great banquet to expose their motives. Now, a little cultural background here is helpful. The custom of invitation in Jesus' time involved Two invitations. It's a custom that was as old as the book of Esther. 
When a prominent banquet was being given, invitations were first sent out, announcing the time of the upcoming meal, and the guests indicated their acceptance. Then, on the day of the banquet, a servant was sent out to re-invite those who had acknowledged that they would be there. Now, the servant only went to those who had said yes. So, to accept the first invitation... But then to decline the second when the servant arrived was an unbelievable insult. So what we have going on here in Jesus' parable is a group of people who have all accepted an invitation and said, yes, I will be there. But now they are offering these half-hearted, lame excuses as to why they won't come on the second invite when the servant showed up to bring them. I've bought a field and I must go out to see it. Was it going to run away? Would it not be there tomorrow? I have bought five yoke of oxen and I must go to examine them. Tell me, who buys 20,000 pounds of livestock before having the opportunity to examine them first? Only a fool. That wasn't a legitimate reason. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come as though... His marriage was an unexpected crimp in his plans, as if he didn't know he was getting married when he accepted the invitation. Now notice about these excuses that Jesus presents. The first two were because of material possessions. The the third was because of their affections. Possessions and affections. These two areas that cover almost every single reason why men and women refuse to enter the kingdom of God. It's obvious that their refusal to come to the feast was contrary to sound reason. The decision to forego a sumptuous feast prepared for you and your friends to forego the joy and laughter and satisfaction offered in order to visit your property or your farm machinery or even to be with your new wife does not make good sense. They will all be there when you return. But Jesus offers the kingdom a perpetual feast of Peace, a feast of help and guidance and friendship and rest and victory over self and control over passions and supremacy over all of our circumstances, a feast of joy and tranquility and deathlessness. Heaven opened up, immeasurable hope granted, salvation. Yet people daily turn their backs on this feast preferring instead to visit with their grass and their oxen. Friends, do you make excuses for rejection of Christ based upon your possessions and your affections? Now, you might rightly recognize that an eternity of wrath awaits you. But here on this earth, you'd rather worship your possessions and your immoral relationships with others instead of submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the authority of our God. The command of God in your life is to repent of your self-serving, destructive, damning rejection of Christ and to put your faith in him. On the day of judgment, you will stand before the judge and you will be without excuse. You will have not one excuse, especially those of you 
who have had the kingdom offered to you time and time and time again. If our possessions and our affections become so preferred that they become an excuse to turn down the feast of Christ, our thinking is absurd. Our souls are in danger. Make no mistake, the real reason people turn away from the eternal feast is that they do not want to be there. They have no appetite for higher things. We need to ask ourselves whether we like our cars more than we like God. If Christ's banquet and a a large worldly estate were spread before us as options, which would we rather have? Why is it that when Christ offers forgiveness and peace and eternal life and an eternal feast, that so few respond? Why is it that people do not want the kingdom of God? It is because their thinking is skewed and distorted. In the depths of their heart, they do not want God. The religious leaders in Christ's day acted as if they wanted the kingdom, but in fact they did not. They wanted their own power. They wanted their own authority. They wanted their own ability to manipulate and get their way. What a tragedy. You know, the hardest people in the world to reach are those who say, blessed is the man who will eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. Because they think they're walking with God when they're so far from him. And brothers and sisters, that's a ton of our neighbors. A people who bow down toward God's word but are unwilling to come to the feast. The Pharisees would have been disgusted with Jesus at this point. But none of them were ready for the next turn of the tale. Which is the same point that Jesus has made in the text we've looked at over the last three weeks now. Namely, that the kingdom of God is offered to outcasts. In Jesus' parable, the subclasses of society, those of less noble standing, were called to the table. But the great banquet still had unfilled spaces. So the servant approaches master and said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done. There is still room. And the master said, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my banquet will be full. This is a prophetic reference to the Gentiles who would soon be invited into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And the servant was not to take no for an answer. The feast must be filled. No seat will be left empty. And so it will be in the eternal state when all of the seats are filled by Jews and Gentiles, many of whom are poor and crippled and blind and lame. The feast will begin and it will go on forever and ever. And oh, what rejoicing there will be. And Jesus ends it all by saying, for I tell you, none of these men who were invited to my banquet shall taste it. This was an extremely personal confrontation. All of these men, they were the original invitees. But not one of them would be admitted to the great banquet unless there was repentance. Remember last week we saw Jesus crying over Jerusalem. 
Oh, how I long to take you under my wing like a hen gathering her chicks. And yet you are unwilling. Oh, they were invited time and again to the banquet. But they refused. And at that moment, every soul in the room except for Jesus was lost. These custodians of the law, these leaders of Israel, they were doomed to judgment. They'd received two invitations to the banquet. They first had one through the law and the prophets and the writings, and they answered, yes, of course. We wouldn't miss the banquet whenever it would come. Just send the customary second invitation, and we will be there for the feast. But they actually love their fields and their oxen and their homes far more than they love God. They prefer their possessions and their affections to heaven. They love the world first because they got their second invite. When Jesus the Messiah had come offering the feast and none of them would have it. And so the question for Jesus' hearers, the question for us this morning is, do we really desire to attend the feast with Christ? Or are other things more important? This is truly the heart of what happens to someone who becomes a Christian. We who once thought of ourselves as exalted and important, we realize we are who we really are, a people who ought to be very humble. We have a lot to be humble about. And in turn, we become a people who are willingly showing mercy and love to others, not putting ourselves in the place of honor, Not seeking to serve others so that we can receive something in return, but rather humbly receiving the invitation from the king to recline at the table of his banquet. Will you be there? Will you feast with the king and with his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation of the world? True members of the kingdom are a humble people who love God, who are learning to love their neighbors as themselves, and as a result, in the end, will be exalted in the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, the power of the word of Christ to compel us to consider our lives to consider all that you have done in us and through us and around us and for us, that we may be humbled, that we may be brought to a place where we recognize that while we were your enemies, you sent Christ to die in our place. And in no way can we ever repay you. No amount of thanks could ever be given to convey what our hearts should feel and know and trust that Christ is enough and he has given all that we may dwell eternally with him at the great heavenly banquet. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would make us a humble, merciful, loving people for the sake of your kingdom. That we would trust you and love you and walk humbly with you. 
And we pray, God, that you would continue to call sinners onto yourself, that they will fill those seats at the banquet. And we pray, O God, that the banquet room would be filled and that we will rejoice together in the heavenly throne room with Jesus. Father, we pray with hearts that desire to see your glory magnified in our homes, in our individual lives, in this church. And so we pray, O God, that you would make us to be a people who see the call in our lives and that we walk in obedience and faithfulness, trusting that as we are humbled, we'll be brought to the eternal kingdom where we will be exalted. What a glorious truth. And we pray that it rests on our hearts and in our minds as we contemplate the value and the power of your word this week ahead of us. And we love you and praise you and thank you for all of this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.